Well, I wonder uh, what you think, what sort of life uh, really pleases God? Uh, what sort of life do you think uh, really pleases God? If God is real, uh, which I assume most of us uh, believe here in this room, if he's real, if he created us, if he made us, if he's kind of there looking down at what we do, the way we live, what sort of life do you reckon would make him look down and smile? It's a nice image, isn't it, to kind of see that our Heavenly Father looks down, sees the way we're living, just kind of smiles and he's like, hey, they're doing a good job. What sort of life do you think that might be? Maybe kind of image comes into your mind, maybe it's a missionary, someone like that. You know, they've, they've kind of given up you know, material wealth and riches and they've gone overseas to deepest, darkest Africa and they're preaching the gospel and doing that sort of thing. Maybe it's a missionary. Maybe that is the kind of idea that comes into your mind, someone that pleases God. Maybe it's, maybe it's your pastor. Uh, you know, maybe it's someone in your life, g'day. Um, maybe it's someone in your life who, um, you know, you know, they're really into reading their Bible, into praying. Maybe it's that kind of idea. Maybe that's the kind of idea that you would have someone who pleases God. You know, tonight in, in this chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4, just the first half of it, we're actually going to snapshot. Uh, Paul gives us a snapshot of what a God-glorifying life looks like, what a, what a life that actually pleases God looks like. And what he says, I think, surprises us a little bit. He actually says it's a life of love. It's a life lived of loving. Loving God uh, with our obedience. There's three points there on your outline. Loving God with obedient action. Loving other Christians, uh, including them, loving them, caring for them. And then also loving people outside the church, uh, loving people who are around us. And when you kind of think about it, uh, if we're supposed to be like God, and God is love, then to live a life of loving action uh, kind of makes sense, right? But I reckon sometimes, you know, maybe we feel a little bit awkward about that. You know, to say, oh, a life that pleases God is about what we do, uh, loving action, you know, good works. I don't know if you feel a little bit awkward about that. You want to please God, so do good things, right? I think sometimes we kind of back off from that way of thinking, don't we? Uh, maybe, maybe you hear me saying that and you go, hang on, Steve, you're kind of sounding a little bit worksy there, right? Uh, you're not saying, you know, that we need to do certain things in order to please God, are you? Well, actually, I think we are, right? Um, but there's a difference. Uh, there's a difference between pleasing God and appeasing God. Uh, we don't appease God with our actions. Jesus has done that. Uh, if we want to have peace with God, uh, no amount of our good works, our good deeds, can ever achieve that. Uh, we're too sinful. Uh, we've, we've fallen short of the mark. Jesus is the one who appeases God. But once we're in, once Jesus has saved us, given us his spirit, reborn us, then we actually are called to live lives that please God. Lives of love, loving action. We're actually, God makes calls on how we live, how we do life. And sometimes I think we get a little bit scared of that. Uh, I think sometimes preachers back off a little bit from saying, this is how you're supposed to live. We don't want to feel, you know, come across as all legalistic. This is what you have to do. Because people might say, hang on, back off. I've got Christian freedom, right? I want to show you a little quote. Uh, a guy called John Stott, you might have heard of him. Uh, he's, well, that's kind of weird spacey, isn't it? Look at that it all the way over there. Anyway, yeah, it's justified itself. That's kind of nice. 
This is John Stott. He's an English preacher from the last century. He passed away just a couple of years ago. He's a great man. He wrote this. Uh, he said, One of the great weaknesses of contemporary evangelical Christianity, and that's us, in case you're wondering, uh, it's, is our neglect of Christian ethics in both our teaching and practice. In consequence, we have become known as people who preach the gospel rather than those who live and adorn it. It's a pretty big call, isn't it? Just look at that last bit again. We've become known as people who preach the gospel rather than those who live and adorn it. And he puts it down to a lack of teaching ethics, actually working out how being saved flows into action in our lives. Uh, See, what I hope you go away from tonight knowing is that you're not saved by Jesus' death on that cross to just live however you want. You're actually saved from death for life, for righteousness. I don't know if you've ever heard that little saying, you're saved from and for. You ever heard that? You're saved from disobedience, for obedience. You're saved from ungodliness, for godliness. You're saved from selfishness, for selflessness. You could probably keep listing them, whatever things you want to come up with. We're saved from one certain way of living in order that we would live a different way. God doesn't save us so that we can just live however we want. No, that moment you become a Christian, the Bible says that you are born again. You're given a new life by the Spirit, John chapter 3. That is, when Jesus saves us, he sends his Spirit who comes into our lives in order that we would live changed lives, in order that he would transform us so that we would become more and more like Jesus, the truly obedient one, the one who always lived and loved like we're supposed to. And now, this isn't an instantaneous thing. It's not as though you know you become a Christian and then snap of the fingers, you're kind of living a perfect life. It doesn't happen like that. No, it's actually a process. Uh, this happens bit by bit, little by little. Every day it's a process where the Spirit of God actually helps us work on this. Work on these ways of becoming more and more like Jesus. And the big word uh, that Paul uses is sanctification. Uh, sanctification is what this is called. Have a look there in verse 3. Uh, Paul says, This is the will of God. This is what pleases God. This is God's purpose. Your sanctification. Uh, what's sanctification? Well, sanctification, uh, it's actually the same Greek word as holiness. Uh, so what that means is sanctification is a process of becoming more and more holy, more set apart for God and for his purposes. Uh, sanctification, it's the process where we become more obedient to God in all of life, just like Jesus was. Uh, it's a step-by-step process. You can see there in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, uh, if you've got your Bible open, that Paul actually urges, urges the Thessalonians to keep hearing God's word, to keep hearing God's instructions, and then to keep working out those instructions in their life. Uh, the will of God, a life that pleases God, you see, is actually one where we become more and more holy, where we put sin to death and become more righteous, to use a really biblical word, or more obedient, more godly, more loving in the way we live. 
Uh, Exodus chapter 19 uh, says, Be holy, for I am holy. Uh, same thing here. God's will is our sanctification. We are to become more holy, like God is holy, like Jesus is holy. Uh, and when you think about it, uh, if you think about it like a family, uh, we've been brought into God's family. Uh, God is our father. Jesus is like our big brother. Uh, those guys are holy. So what are we to do? Well, we're to take on the family likeness, aren't we? Take on the family likeness of holiness. Become like them. Godly living. Living lives of love, of selflessness. And what we see as we turn to consider uh, our first point tonight is that Paul calls us uh, that we need to love God firstly in our personal lives, our relationship with God. Uh, We see that in this process, actually, as God calls us to do that, that's his will, our sanctification, the Spirit of God actually comes and helps us in that process. Uh, So have a look there uh, in verses 3 to 8, if you've got your Bible open. Paul picks up probably what I think is the hardest of all sins to get under control, and that is sexual immorality. And he says there, verse 3, he says, Abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you is to know how to control your body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's pretty clear instruction, what Paul's talking about here. Uh, He says Christians are called to sexual purity, not sexual immorality. Uh, This... This means things like abstaining from sex and sexual acts that are only designed for in marriage. Uh, it means abstaining from pornography. It means abstaining from all sorts of lustful fantasizing, things like that. It means controlling ourselves in ways that are holy and honoring to God. And I don't know about you, but you might hear that and think, well, how on earth am I meant to do that? I know I've just got... Maybe you've just got to think over the last week and you think, I've failed in so many ways. I haven't done that well. My urges are so strong. How can I abstain from those kind of things? Well, the answer is actually right here in the text. Look there in the end of verse 5. The answer to abstaining from those kinds of sins is actually by knowing God. Uh, See, Paul says there that the people who get caught up in lusts and worldly passions, who are they? Look there, verse 5. They're the Gentiles. They're the ones that don't know God. See, the answer to overcoming sexual sin, to actually overcoming any sin in life, it's actually to know God, to know him in deeper and deeper ways. Why is this true? Well, because when you know God, you actually start to love God. You actually start to see that that God is better than the sin that you're getting caught up in. God is actually more satisfying than the sin that you're getting caught up in. And see, because you know him, because you love him, because you see him better than sin, it means you'll actually choose him. A little bit like what Terry just said, what the Thessalonians did. They actually turned to God, and when they did, they left their idols behind. That's the first chapter of Thessalonians. So let me just unpack this for a minute. Uh, Ask yourself the question, why do we find sexual immorality so attractive? Why do you think that is? 
See, whatever it is, whether it's whether it's overstepping those boundaries with our boyfriend or girlfriend, whether it's getting caught up with pornography, I think we chase after sex because of what it communicates to us, don't we? Because it actually communicates to us that someone really loves us, that someone accepts us, that we belong, that we fit in, that we're valuable, right? That's why we chase after it. That someone would give themselves to us. It actually makes us feel significant in many ways. That's why we crave romantic relationships. It's why we look at pornography. It's because with a click of a button, you can actually get that sense of feeling loved and accepted and significant just so fast. But you know, if you've ever been doing that, then you would know that that is just so fleeting, isn't it? Those good sensations, they just don't last long. Soon enough, they're actually replaced with guilt, aren't they? Chasing after fulfilment in that sort of way, it actually doesn't work because it doesn't fit in with God's design for us. That's what the Gentiles do. The people who don't know God, that's what they do. But Paul says here, he says, no, actually, know God. Know him. That's the answer. Because when you know God, you know what else you know? You get to know his son, Jesus. Because that's what the Bible's all about. The Bible actually points in every way to Jesus. Jesus who actually says, you know that sense of love you've been looking for? That sense of acceptance and significance you've been looking for? In all those sorts of other ways? Jesus says, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how significant you are to me? He says, I died on that cross for you. That's how significant you are. That's kind of rock-solid love, isn't it? It's not going to walk out in the morning. It's not going to disappear in the computer screen. He says, do you know how much I accept you? When he dies on that cross, he says, I know absolutely everything about you. And yet I gave up my life for you. That's love right there. That's true love. You don't have to prove yourself to Jesus. He accepts us. He forgives us at the cross. See, that, I think, that's the kind of love and acceptance that satisfies us. We find it when we get to know God more deeply. In verse 7 and 8, Paul says, God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, that is this word about purity and holiness, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul here, he actually spells out what we're doing when we reject this word of God. When we reject the word of God, we actually disregard God himself. We say, kind of rack off God. I don't want to hear you on this issue. I just want to live life my own way. And you know, when we reject God, we also reject the spirit that he's given to us. Uh, We reject the Spirit who actually wants to work in us, to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to change us, to transform us, so we don't get caught up in those ways of living over and over again. We've been talking a lot about staying on track with Jesus lately. And you know, I reckon the fastest way to stay on track with Jesus is to do this. It's to close your Bible. It's to close your Bible 
Because when you close your Bible, you know what you're doing? You're actually cutting yourself off from the very thing that the Spirit yields and wields to do His work. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 says, The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit wants to change us, wants to transform us. How does He do that? As we open up the Word of God, as we see the glory of the Son, and what He's done for us. If we close our Bibles, if we don't get to know God more and more deeply, and we're cutting ourselves off from the way that the Spirit works primarily to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Friends, you want to stay on track with Jesus? Then be in the Word of God. Be in the Word of God. Get to know God more deeply. Because when you're in the Word, then the Spirit will do His work of helping you know God. He will help you see the glory of his son who died for us on that cross. The Spirit of God, he actually, he wants to change us. He wants that word of God to sink into our hearts. He wants to take that word of God and change our mind and our hearts so that we become more and more like Jesus. He wants to do that because when he does, we will actually love God more than we love sin. And we will choose righteous ways of living. That's how the process of sanctification works. We hear the word of God, which teaches us about the glory of the Son who loves us. And the Spirit confirms that in us, so that we would choose God over sin. That's what God wants for us. That's what actually pleases him. That's what verse 3 is all about. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's that our lives would be changed bit by bit, slowly, sometimes it's very slow. But you know, preachers tell this story, you might have heard this story, it's about an acorn. Uh, Acorns are pretty cool, they're little things and you know, big oak trees grow out of them. Uh, There's a story, apparently there's this grave in Italy, I've never been there, Um, but there was this grave and there was this massive marble slab laid over, you know, where the body was, was buried but it must have been in the process of when they were burying the body, uh, an acorn fell in the soil. Right? And, it, and the little acorn, over the years, you know, sprouted a little shoot. And then over the years, that little shoot became this tree. Right? And years and years, hundreds of years later really, which is not much good for us because we, we don't last hundreds of years, but go with the illustration. Hundreds of years later, this little acorn had actually pushed the marble slab up and broken it, broken it in half. And this great big tree had grown out of it. Now preachers tell that story to say that if, if botanical growth, a little acorn with life in it, can move that massive slab of marble, can break it in half, then how much more could God's Holy Spirit, the one who gives life to us in the beginning, How much more can he change us in every way if we just open ourselves up and let him do his work? How much more can he change us? It might look slow. You know, you watch an acorn growing, a little, or you watch a tree growing, or you don't see a whole lot of progress right there and then. You kind of think, is that really changing? Is there really difference? But little by little, that's how this process works. The Spirit of God changes us. 
We just have to be in the Word of God, exposing ourselves to the goodness of Jesus so that the Spirit can do this work of changing us. You might have barriers in your life, sins in your life, that you think that can never be broken. But the Spirit of God can do it. That's his job. It's changing us from one degree of glory to the next. You want to break the power of sin in your life? Let me encourage you to get to know God more and more. Get to know him more deeply. Open up the word of God so the Spirit can do his work. Pray about it. Ask God to change you. (coughs) Because that's what God wants to do. It's his will that we would be sanctified, that we would be transformed in all these ways. That's point number one. The other two are a little bit quicker. Point number one, we please God by loving him, by choosing him instead of sin. And point number two, uh, Paul says in verses 9 and 10, we actually please God in another way. We please God by loving other Christians. It's a second way that we please God. Have a look there in verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul here, you see, he congratulates the Thessalonians on the way they've been loving each other. They've been doing really well. They've been taught by God through his word and by his spirit. And Paul says, what does he say? He says, keep going. Keep loving each other. Keep doing it. More and more. Don't give up. Don't relax about it. Love each other. And the reason Paul says that is because God's desire is that all Christians would be loving all Christians. That would be inclusive, not exclusive, when we get together. We kind of miss it a little bit in our English translations, but in the original Greek, the word all is actually repeated twice. Uh, it's, it's unnecessary in the language, but it's repeated for the sake of emphasis. Literally, Paul says in these verses, he says, that is what you're doing to all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. The word all, it's repeated twice in the original. And it's repeated twice because love in the family of God is for everyone. All people are to love all people. There is to be no exclusion Jesus said this himself uh, in Luke chapter 6. I don't know if you know that uh, moment in Luke 6. Jesus said, anybody can learn to love someone who will love them back. That's pretty easy. I mean, it's easy to be nice to people who will be nice back. There's nothing hard about that. But to love people that are difficult, uh, to love everyone... That's what actually sets Christian love apart. That's what should set Christian groups apart from other kind of groups of people. Everyone is to love everyone, include everyone. Love people that you know you have absolutely nothing in common with. It's kind of hard for a bit. You know, you go, "Well, what am I going to talk about?" You know, you talk about Jesus. You both love him, right? That's something in common. You got to love people who you might otherwise avoid. Love people who, you know, not from your background, don't share the same interests with. That's the call here. Love everyone. 
You know, love people who you look at their Facebook feed and you think, I'm not going to like anything on that. They put up weird videos. Love people who don't even play sport. I mean, how can we love them, right? That's the call. Love people. All brethren who are in all Macedonia. That's what Paul says. And Paul reminds us that it includes everyone. The Thessalonians, they were doing well, but he says, do it more and more. Keep going. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Why is this a big challenge for us? To love everyone, even the unlovely. So often, you know, I do this. I'm guilty of this. We look around and what do you start doing when you go to a group? Christian group, go to church, see you. Start ranking people, don't you? Where do I fit in this crowd? Oh, I'm a bit funnier than them. <laughs> Clearly Bree's ranking me. No, that's not true. Maybe it is, I don't know. Yeah, I'm cooler than them. I'm not going to sit with them. I'm going to wait for my friends to turn up and I'm going to sit with them. I'll talk to them. That kind of thing. What happens when we start doing it? Start ranking, start comparing ourselves with one another. We actually start to feel superior to other people, don't we? Put ourselves up a level, a little bit higher, maybe. Instead of loving everyone, what are we doing? We're judging them, right? Instead of including, we actually start to exclude, cut people out. It's the very opposite of what we're called to do. So my question is, how do you actually stop that? How do you stop doing that? How do you start doing the very hard thing of loving everyone, including everyone? Well, I think we do it by knowing God and his gospel, don't we? Uh, That's how we actually learn to love one another. We actually learn and are taught and trained to love one another when we go back to the gospel. Because there we actually see that we're all on a level playing field. We are all in God's family because we are all sinners saved by grace. We have done nothing to get into God's family. You ever thought about that? Just think for a moment. What did you bring that got you into God's family? What did you contribute? Nothing. right? You were just sinning. I was just sinning. Just living a life apart from God. And what did God do? He came and he gave his spirit to me and he plucked me from the kingdom of darkness and put me in the kingdom of light. I did nothing. God did it. You did nothing. We all did nothing to contribute to be in God's family. We contributed nothing. kind of levels the playing field, doesn't it? When we're all in the room because we've all done nothing. It says that there's no... Levels. There's no place for saying, I'm more significant than you, because we've all got in solely because of Jesus and what he's done for us on that cross. We're all on a level playing field. So there's no place for superiority in God's family. No, it's only by going back to the gospel, reminding ourselves that we're all in only because of God's mercy. When you do that, it actually creates feelings of thankfulness, doesn't it? You go back to the gospel, that kind of superiority complex that we have, it just dissolves away. I did nothing. God did everything. How good is God? Get to know him. Get to know the gospel. And it changes us, you see. 
We're all on a level playing field at the foot of the cross. Struggling to love other Christians. Perhaps you're struggling with comparing yourself to others, feeling superior. I encourage you to go back to the gospel. Because when you do, the Spirit of God will take that word of God and he'll change your heart. He'll actually make you love others that are just, you feel, are so unlovely. You'll actually become like the God who's loved you. God who loves the unlovely. That's when he loved us. Jesus says to us, he says, love one another as I have loved you. That is how people will know that you are my disciples. Finally, the third area uh, that Paul brings our attention to actually has to do with the way we love not just people in the church, but people outside the church as well. Now have a look there in verses 11 and 12. Paul says there, he says, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul says there finally, he says, A third way to please God, to live a life pleasing of God, is to love those around us by what we do, uh, through our work, through our actions. A little bit of context here. Uh, when you go over to the second letter that Paul wrote, 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 3, you actually see there that a lot of these Thessalonians, because they were so convinced that Jesus is going to come back, which is a really good thing, um, they actually stopped working. They just kind of gave up. They're like, oh, Jesus come back. Get the deck chairs out, have a seat, just wait, right? They did, that's what they did. And so they were so excited about it, they quit their jobs. They're just waiting. Jesus is going to come back. And I reckon, you know, that's good. We're going to be talking about Jesus' return next week. That's the second half of chapter 4. Um, it's good that they, they were so convinced of it. I think we actually struggle with believing that sometimes. But you see, waiting. what Paul's saying here is waiting for Jesus to come back. It doesn't mean inactivity. It doesn't mean we're just going to sit back and go, oh, he's going to come back. Life will be sweet till then. No, if you, just, if you do that, well, Paul notes here, it actually has two really damaging effects. See, the first one is, is actually the effect it has on non-Christians, people who don't yet know Jesus. Uh, see, non-Christians, what would have they thought if they just saw all these Thessalonians kind of lined up on their deck chairs going, oh, I'm not going to work today, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. What would they have thought? They go, oh, those Christians, they're a lazy bunch, aren't they? Just waiting around for their God to come back? Not contributing to society? How unloving is that? But I think the second thing is, the Paul notes again, he says, if you do that, you actually become dependent on other people. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in a deck chair waiting for Jesus to come back, you still need to eat. So you're probably going to be going, hey, Mom, can you bring me some food? Instead of going out and earning a living for yourself. Paul says in these last few verses, he says, a way of loving people and pleasing God is actually to work. He's not talking about... He's not rebuking people who can't get work, uh, who are looking for work and finding that difficult. No, he's saying if you can work and work is available, then do it. Because work is a good way to love the people around you. I don't know if you've ever thought about that uh, as when you think about work. Work is really just a really organised way of loving people, isn't it? 
I mean, think about it. Um, dentistry, for instance, if you dentists here tonight, uh, your work of being a dentist, it's not about how much money you get paid. That's not what makes it good work. It's good work because you will love people by fixing their teeth. You actually love people through your work. Uh, if you're a teacher, uh, then you love people by educating them and educating their kids. You actually build loving communities. Uh, if you're an urban planner or an engineer, you, you plan good cities so people can not have five ways roundabouts, which just freak people out. I mean, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. You know, or you build bridges that actually allow people to get from one place to the next. If, if you're a preacher, you actually love people by preparing people to meet Jesus. All these sorts of works that we do, the goodness of your work, you actually judge the goodness of your work not by how much money it pays, but by how well it loves people and loves the community and builds communities of people who actually love and care for each other. It's a good way to think about your work. See, Paul insists in these final ways, in these final verses, that Christians who know God uh, should work with their hands. Our aspiration doesn't mean we all have to do manual labour, although it's hard to do work without any use of your hands at all, if you think about that. Even typing, you know, that's pretty hands-on. He says our aspiration, though, our aspiration in our work, what is it? Well, aspire to live a quiet life. I don't think that means we have to turn our CD players right down. No, I think, well, what, what, what might a loud life look like? Maybe getting so much money that you've got the flashiest car and the biggest house on the street. Kind of loud and proud, this is all my stuff, have a look at that. Um, and he says, aspire to live a quiet life. It's not about, yeah, it's not about getting stacks of money. In fact, if, if you do have the biggest house on the street and the flashiest car, then you probably haven't been doing number two very well. <laughs> you haven't been being generous and loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, uh, work hard for two reasons. Work in order that you'll walk properly before outsiders so that your witness will be good and also so that we are dependent on no one. It's a way of loving the people around us. And now I know most of you aren't in full-time work at the moment. Uh, That doesn't mean that study is wrong and getting Centrelink is wrong and all that sort of stuff. Uh, No, study, you actually do it with a good intent at the end, right? I think if you're a perpetual student, then you might want to question that. Um, but we study in order that we will get a job at the end, once we graduate, in order that through our work, we can love and care for people. Uh, that is a good thing to do. That's why we work. So three things tonight to finish up. Three things. A life that pleases God. It's a life of love, isn't it? Loving action. Of doing good of loving God in the way we choose him over sin, in the way we live lives of obedience, are loving everyone in the family of God, being inclusive of them, going back to the gospel, reminding ourselves that we're all in only because of what Jesus has done for us on that cross. And finally, loving the world through our work. That's the encouragement that Paul says. He says, if you want to live a life that pleases God, then love Love like God loves. Love like he loved you. Love like Jesus lived. In obedience, loving his neighbour. If you want to do it, 
And the encouragement here tonight is to keep going back to the Word of God. Keep knowing God more and more. And allow the Spirit to do His work of sanctifying you, of changing you, of making you more like Jesus. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can be here tonight. We thank you that uh, you don't want to leave us in our sin. Uh, you want to change us from one degree to the next so that we would live lives that truly glorify and please you. Father, I pray for us in this busy period of uni. Pray that we would not get so busy and stressed that we would forget to work on getting to know you more and more, trusting you more and more, and allowing your spirit to do the work of changing us. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I pray that that we will be changed as a result, uh, that we would make a new commitment to get on top of sin. Father, help us to do that by reminding ourselves of your goodness to us at the cross. We pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen.